Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present on history.org. This is Behind the Scenes. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. My guests today are Suzanne Hood, Associate Curator of Ceramics and Glass, and Janine Scary, Curator of Metals. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks. Nice to be here. We've asked you to come by today to talk about um, a new exhibit at the DeWitt Wallace Museum called Pottery with a Past, as well as a companion book that goes with it. Let's talk about the exhibit first. What does that exhibit encompass at the DeWitt? It's, it includes the whole spectrum of stoneware that was used and in some instances made in early America. Um, the earliest object in the exhibition date-wise is a piece from Germany that was made about 1550 to 1575. And then it goes all through German objects, English-made objects, and American-made items up to about 1800 in date. And so the focus really is on the types of stoneware that were used here in early America. And what would some of those specific objects be? Well, there is everything from very high-style pieces like teapots in white salt-glazed stoneware made in England in the middle of the 18th century to chamber pots made in all sorts of different places, America, England, Germany, uh, and used throughout the time period that the exhibit covers, approximately 1600 to 1800. In the collection at the DeWitt, we see a progression from Germany, then to England, then to America. How does that actually play out in the pieces that you have? Well, those three major countries or regions that are making and exporting this type of material, um, the Germans come first, the English come second, the Americans come third. I think the glory days in, uh, from an American perspective in the ownership and use of German stoneware are mostly in the 17th century for the brownwares coming out of the Freshen region and throughout the 18th century for the ubiquitous blue and gray wares that are associated with the Vesterval production. England comes along a little bit later in date. Um, they're making brownstone ware in a German style by about 1675. Um, and of course, American stoneware is being made by individuals who are transplanted both from England and from Germany, and so they're bringing their different working traditions with them. Uh, the earliest American stoneware um, uh, successful production is happening in here in Virginia, in Yorktown, Virginia, actually, beginning in the 1720s. Do you find that stylistically they attempt to imitate one another or to appeal to a certain consumer? I would say during the 18th century, almost all the American-made stoneware is very much trying to look like either English or German wares predominantly because they're, the American potters are making fewer objects and they're um, trying to compete with this very large quantity of imported goods coming in from England and Germany. And so it makes sense that they would try to make their product look just like the stuff that American consumers were already used to buying from England and Germany. Stoneware has some really distinctive characteristics and what, what we're talking about in fact is salt glaze stoneware, um, a very specialized product that is remarkably resilient. Um, it can withstand some pretty heavy usage and unlike most other types of ceramics it has a glaze, um, in this case a glaze made of um, salt or sodium chloride that is very tightly chemically bonded to the elements within the clay, which have a lot of so, uh, luminous silicates in them. And so stoneware is remarkably durable, and it's also resistant to both um, acidic solutions and saline solutions. Stoneware is great for pickling and salting and preserving foods. 
And so you have this um, aspect in American production especially where the utilitarian aspects of it are enhanced and played up to create these very robust large forms that were used to basically ensure that you could live a happier life. You could eat better because you had a wider range of foodstuffs available for those lean winter months when there were no kitchen gardens uh, that were giving anything useful in the cl colder climates. Is stoneware going to be in every household in the colonies in some form? Pretty much. One of the things that um, we heard again and again from the various archaeologists we consulted with is that if it is an 18th century American site, especially pre-colonial, and you do not find some evidence archaeologically of the German Westerwald stonewares, uh, the blue and gray wares, you really need to reassess your evaluation of the site and your dating of it because they are such common objects that you expect to find them at virtually every domestic site and certainly that is also true for most public sites like um, taverns or other public meeting places. I wonder if because these objects were so common maybe they weren't treasured, uh, does that make mm. them harder to find because they would have been discarded? Actually, that was one of the things that was very frustrating to, um, to us when we were working on the project. We spent over seven years working on this project, and we found ten objects that survive above ground that have histories of ownership going back to the 17th or 18th century, reliable histories of ownership. And I think that really does speak to the fact that, for the most part, these things were fairly utilitarian. Even the really refined things were beautiful, but they weren't quite as rarefied and quite as expensive as some Chinese porcelain, for example, and so may not have been kept, passed on, and have their histories still attached to them. Um, so that actually was a yeah. really interesting thing for us that we, we thought, oh, surely we'll find, you know, 50 or yeah. so with histories and 10. S Suzanne <laughs> and I got to joking and, and came to the conclusion that in many respects, um, salt-glazed stoneware from these various nations is not all that distantly removed from Pyrex and Tupperware. It's an essential object of everyday life. Um, you really can't conduct your household well without it, but you rarely celebrate it or um, preserve it as an icon of your family history. Do you find that the study of an object like that, which is found in all levels of society, gives you a different level of insight into the 18th century? I, I think that's a fair statement. Um, for me, there's something, I, we used a lot of documents. We used um, inventories and shopkeepers' accounts, um, uh, records of um, merchants buying things for specific uh, individuals here in America, including George Washington. And those words are very, very compelling. But still, when all is said and done, there is nothing like being able to hold that three-dimensional object, that literal, tangible piece of the past. And to put it in a better context and understand it, um, for me, it just makes history come alive. And, and uh, these objects speak volumes, even though they might do it in a very quiet way. There are things you can understand about an object only when you hold it. Um, we have people that often will bring objects in for us to look at because they have seen something in the historic area or in a museum and they think, oh, you know, I, I have one like that at home and they bring their object in for us to evaluate it and look at it. And a lot of times what happens is, I you know, we're in the position of saying to them, you know, this does look a lot like the object you saw in the historic area, but if you could have held that object, 
you would see that your object is very different from that object. And the only way to tell that is to be able to hold it or to have studied it very closely. What do your fingers tell you that your eyes don't? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, the weight of an object is a tremendously useful clue. Um, we find quite frequently, especially in the field of um, ceramics and glass, that modern reproductions tend to be much heavier than their period counterparts. So there are all these little tiny clues that you need to look for when you're handling it. Do you have a favorite object that you've curated for this collection? The oldest object in the exhibit I mentioned earlier um, is a piece of German brown stoneware. It was made about 1550 to 1575, and it's a rather simple little plain drinking mug. What makes it really special is that we know that this object was already old when it came to America. It was brought um, across the Atlantic by a man named John Winthrop, who was traveling to Massachusetts, where he would become the governor of the Bay Colony. And it was a family heirloom given into his family by a British noblewoman named Lady Mildmay. And because it was considered such a special object at that point in time, it had been recorded down through the generations as it passed from father to son. It's one of my absolute favorite pieces. It just speaks volumes about... Um, how objects are viewed now and then as symbols of continuity and tradition and family history. One of my favorites is the, um, there's a lidded pipkin. Pipkins are um, cooking pots. They have uh, this very distinctive shape. They, have, they sort of look like a, a sack or a bag. And then they have a tubular handle attached to them, hollow tubular handle attached. But they're everywhere. A lot of archaeological sites, I mean, we, there are lots and lots and lots of them that I looked at while I was doing different surveys of archaeological collections. And they're nice, and they're very utilitarian objects. But I was in Delaware um, picking up an, another object for the exhibit. And um, the curator there said of the collections, the archaeological collections, said, oh, would you like to get a tour of these other things? And I said, of course, I'd love to see it. And he was pulling open drawers and opening cabinets, and he pulled this one drawer out, and I about died. A whole drawer full of these pipkins, very small size ones, sort of individual size saucepans, and they all had lids. And we had never seen or heard of a pipkin with a lid. When people come to see this exhibit, what do you hope to impart to them? What do you hope that they will leave with? I really hope that people will realize that the term stoneware encompasses a very broad range of goods. Um, an awful lot of collectors um, and, and curators hear the word stoneware and automatically think of the more common and sometimes ubiquitous later 19th century Pickle crocs. And they're an important part of the story, but there is so much that precedes it. It's so rich and varied. If anyone takes anything away, if they see an object that sparks an interest to read a label or see an object that they think, oh, that looks like something I have at home, anything that gets them thinking about these things that connect people of hundreds of years ago with the people of today and make history and the past come alive, I mean, that's a success. We are really uh, so grateful. There are more than 45 um, private individuals and public institutions who have been incredibly generous in lending objects for the exhibition and for illustration in the book. We are very, very grateful to the Bonhaus Foundation. They provided the funding and the encouragement um, for us to work for seven and a half years on both the exhibit and the book. Well, thank you both for being here today.
Thank you. Thank you. And we hope you'll come out and see the exhibit on display now at the DeWitt Wallace Museum through January 2nd, 2011. And the book, Salt Glazed Stoneware in Early America, is available for purchase at history.org slash publications and at Colonial Williamsburg stores. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. We like hearing from you. Send us a comment at history.org slash podcasts. Check back often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.